Welcome to the New Arab Voice, a podcast hosted by the New Arab, featuring unfiltered voices from the Middle East, North Africa, and beyond. It's Friday, the 28th of May, and I am your host, Gaia Karamatsa, coming to you from London. Here's what we'll be covering today. On the onset, new Arab producer Hugo Goodridge will be covering the latest news coming out of Palestine. Then, stay tuned to hear an in-depth report on the historical relationship between the U.S. and Israel, and how this has been pivotal to the Israeli colonization of Palestine. I think the U.S. is a is, is a full accomplice to Israel's war crimes. The U.S. gives Israel $3.8 billion a year in military aid. It gives it uh, full backing. It actually uh, has been consistently at the forefront of preventing any attempt to condemn Israel or to challenge its violations of human rights and uh, international law. In our final segment, we sit down with two veteran activists who tell us about their work and the difficulties surrounding campaigning for Palestine as members of the diaspora. I've always been part of this struggle and pushed for, for Palestinian freedom because I'm Palestinian, but also because I recognize that Palestine actually plays a very central role in freedom struggles all over the world. Um, because of the way that Israel is connected to different um, um, imperialist countries, and the U.S. is one of them, and its role in sort of helping to prop up and um, develop, you know, cozy ties with right-wing governments from Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, um, Viktor Orban in Hungary, etc. Now, here's Hugo Goodridge with the latest. Palestine has been front and centre in the Middle East over the past fortnight. Protests against forced expulsions in East Jerusalem, a brutal bombing campaign on Gaza by Israeli forces, rockets fired by Hamas, and after a horrific 11 days, which saw 248 people, including 66 children killed in Gaza and 12 Israelis killed, a ceasefire was declared. Joining us to discuss how events unfolded and what comes next is Deputy Editor of The New Arab and friend of the podcast, Ben Ashraf. Hello, Ben. How are you? Good, thanks, Hugo. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Gaza's experienced a terrifying 11 days. What was it that sparked this latest round of violence? I think the, the first thing to note is that often the triggers in these cases are more a continuation of what's been going on in the past. In this case, it was a continuation of the forced expulsions of 28 Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah. It was also continued incursions by the Israeli authorities into the Baba Rahma prayer area of Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. I guess it all reached to a boiling point as a result of the Flag Day ceremony. And there were ultra-nationalist um, ceremonies occurring in which um, Israelis would parade with flags. Israel normalised relations with a, a few Arab countries lately. How did the Arab leaders and the Arab people in the region outside of Palestine uh, react to the attacks that we saw unfolding? In terms of the Arab people, the response has been almost unanimous and quite inspiring is the, uh, the amount of popular support they've been able to get on the streets. 
for example, in Algeria, 250,000 were in the square, in uh, the Algiers main square. And of course, in Jordan, that has a sizable Palestinian community, as tensions continue to flare, there were thousands of Jordanian Palestinians who marched the Jordanian-Palestinian border and showed great sense of solidarity with their homeland. In terms of the government response, there are a lot of statements being made. Turkey in particular condemned it, with Erdogan calling it a massacre. Jordan and Saudi Arabia released a statement after the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in which Jordan pleaded the international community to crystallise international efforts to protect the Palestinians against Israeli aggression. So Ben, what about other foreign nations and international bodies? What were they saying about the attacks? The UN called for de-escalation, and this was a sentiment that was also shared by US Premier Joe Biden. But of course, the United States' support for Israel has been unwavering and has been throughout its history. However, there is an exception this time in that in Congress and in the Senate, there was growing resistance to this support, a support that was shown by America pledging $750 million to weapons um, whilst the conflict was going on. Did this latest round of violence strike you as different to previous outbreaks, notably in 2014, when there was a, a similar attacks by Israel? Well, following the conflict on social media, in particular some activists that were living in Gaza, their perception of it is that this round of violence was substantially worse. The reasons that they gave for this were that there was at least a perception from the Gazans this time that there was more indiscriminate bombing and that some of the stories coming out of Gaza in the evening was that throughout communities that there was really a sense that they didn't know whether they'd live or die. So a ceasefire was called at the start of this week. What's this change and what's next to come? Are we going to be seeing more foreign nations re-evaluating their ties with Israel? Well, I think it's important to say that this ceasefire was met with jubilation in Palestine. But it's important to know that, that it's also very temporary. For Palestinians, they know that this is an ongoing process and that the apartheid that exists in their country is continuous. So from the Palestinian perspective, what is needed is a continuation of this real galvanization of Palestinian activism that's occurring all over the globe. And I think, Hugo, you're right in saying that certainly this is different this time. And there definitely does seem to be a real tangible sense that something is beginning. And the day of this recording, Dominic Raab has gone to the Middle East and we're starting to see a definite shift from the old Donald Trump policy towards it. But how much that will satisfy what is a real growing appetite of Palestinian activists to see uh, what's happening on the ground is, is yet to be seen. The forced expulsions in Sheikh Jarrah by Israeli settlers lit the fuse of the recent violence and the fighting in Gaza nor the ceasefire provided a solution. Recently we spoke with Asil Al-Baja, a legal researcher and advocacy officer at the human rights organisation Al-Haq, who explained that this will play out in court. There was supposed to be a hearing on May 10th, and on May 9th, the Attorney General requested that the court uh, freezes the, uh, the that there should be a hearing on 10th of May. And and so the, the session was cancelled. Now the court is saying that in 30 days, they will issue a date for the next hearing session. Despite the case being heard in a court, Fairness under the law is not anticipated. 
But I want to highlight that when we're talking about Israeli courts uh, regarding Palestinian rights, Palestinians, including the people of Sheikh Jarrah, they don't trust or acknowledge these Israeli courts. Israeli courts apply Israeli domestic law, which is illegal to be transferred to the occupied East Jerusalem. This case will continue. And while it does, Palestinians will continue to hope for justice. We are hopeful uh, in our voices. We think that uh, in order for our voices to have concrete action or like to solve uh, and have our rights fulfilled, we need the international community to step in. We are hopeful that the media is speaking more about Israel as one regime conducting violence against Palestinians across Palestine. We're seeing how they are suppressing protesters in Jerusalem, uh, but also in Haifa and in Nazareth. So this is one regime that is trying to kill Palestinian voices. President Eisenhower's Middle East doctrine, contained in a bill which he signed in Washington, is an expression of America's determination to help Middle East countries to preserve their independence. It underlines America's concern in the region, and now that the Gaza Strip is again a stony crisis point, it has particular significance for Israel. The sentiment behind these words sound very familiar to a lot of us. Since the Second World War, U.S. imperialism has dominated international relations across the globe, especially in the Middle East. U.S. interests in the region have especially been facilitated by their allyship with Israel, whose creation in 1948 changed the dynamics in the Middle East forever. I think the U.S. is a, is, is a full accomplice to Israel's war crimes. This is Dr. Lina Dallasheh. Associate Professor of History at Humboldt State University. The U.S. gives Israel $3.8 billion a year in military aid. It gives it uh, full backing. It actually uh, has been consistently at the forefront of preventing any attempt to condemn Israel or to challenge its violations of human rights and uh, international law. Um, and thus it carries a significant responsibility, only second to Israel, in uh, accountability and in responsibility to end uh, the war crimes uh, that are being committed with American money and with American political backing. Many see how Washington's blanket support of Israel actually encourages a disproportionate use of force against Palestinians, including Israel's recent bombardment of the besieged Gaza Strip. Israeli colonization has decimated Palestinian land for more than 70 years, all the while retaining support from international powers like the US, the UK, and even Russia. This started with the creation of the Israeli state itself. On May 14, 1949, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel, and the U.S. president at the time, Harry S. Truman, recognized the new nation on the very same day. Later in the day, Israel's flag was flying over Haifa, and the Prime Minister, Mr. Ben-Gurion, was there for the taking over ceremony. A sad chapter had closed, and the world hopes that you know will be able to find a satisfactory solution to the Palestine problem. 
But for Palestinians, the same year marks the Nakba, where up to 750,000 Palestinians fled or were expelled from the land that became Israel, and they were never allowed back. Ever since then, they have faced Israeli occupation and a 70-year-long campaign of ethnic cleansing. So why was the United States, which branded itself as the supposed champion of human rights across the world, so complicit in erasing the rights of Palestinians? One part of it is um, the existence of a strong Zionist lobby that uh, the earlier years, one of the theories of why Wilson's administration supported the Balfour Declaration is that some of his close advisors, including Louis Brandeis, uh, were, were Zionist. Another part of the story uh, is Orientalism, which the U.S. basically inherits from Europe, which is this idea that people of the Orient and what we now call the Global South are inherently different and essentially inferior. So in 1947-48, when the Palestinians reject the partition plan, insisting that Palestine is their homeland, uh, this rejection is viewed merely as the Palestinians were um, being irrational, which is a part of the colonial thinking. Another factor um, to uh, uh, to take in consideration here is that the influence of the uh, Holocaust guilt meant that there was a tendency to accept and sympathize the plight of the European Jewish, which becomes translated into the Zionist argument that the only solution is a homeland in Palestine. And those are all compounded with um, there wasn't as strong machine or a public body to explain the cause of the Palestinians and uh, the Arab states that uh, espoused it were also new and not even fully decolonized. Uh, so they also didn't strategize in the best way. So, for example, the Palestinians actually did not uh, speak to the UNSCOP, the committee that came to decide the fate of Palestine uh, in 1947. American geopolitical interests dominated the Cold War period, and they had to strengthen the control over the Middle East using Israel to do so. In the 1960s, Israel also bought aircrafts from France and tanks from Britain. Neighboring Arab states were outraged that Israel was established without their agreement and was being funded by Western powers, so they decided to play the Cold War battlefield to their advantage, and the Soviet Union was soon providing Egypt with a modern air force. All of this was the pretext to the 1967 war, which saw Egypt lead a group of Arab states against Israel, but resulted in a sizable defeat that would change the country's standing in the region for the rest of time. The Johnson administration and the Nixon administration came to see Israel as an increasingly important ally in the region and, and more broadly in a Cold War context. This is Zachary Lockman, professor of modern Middle Eastern history at New York University and a contributing editor at Middle East Report. And that's the point that you start getting massive U.S. military and economic aid to Israel, the development over the 70s and 80s of, of very close relations, intelligence sharing, ultimately joint weapons development, and Israel serving as a bit of a proxy, doing things uh, that the United States is not in a position to do itself. There's a joke that at some point someone thanked Richard Nixon when he was president for his support of Israel, and he said, well, you know, Israel is a lot cheaper than an than a, uh, aircraft carrier in terms of serving American interests. From the 1970s also, you get the development of what's called the Israel Lobby, 
uh, a quite effective and powerful network of, of organizations in the United States which uh, lobby Congress, which influence public opinion. Since then, it didn't really matter if Democrats or Republicans were elected. Israel was not to be touched. In the coming years, it would position itself as the beacon of democracy in the region, playing into this false Orientalist narrative that vilified Arabs. The discourse of terrorism that became so prevalent actually builds on Orientalist notions of Palestinians, Arabs slash Muslims, because those are interchangeable in American public opinion, uh, that those uh, people are essentially different and inherently inferior. Terrorism, if you look at the discourse that develops post 9-11, which of course uh, goes on to engulf the Palestinians, then terrorism is not a result of political grievances or a a contested history, uh, but in fact is only uh, a product of Arab slash Islamic mentality. Um, and um, in fact, uh, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Ariel Sharon, uh, was very successful in playing on this uh, card of, you know, the global war on terror and kind of clearly placing Israel on the side of the free world, on the side of the U.S. and placing the Palestinians uh, on the on the uh, terrorist side. From the 1970s and 1980s, the allyship with Israel started to become a more partisan issue. The Reagan administration was in some sense closer to Israel than ever before, taking a very hardline uh, stance towards the Soviet Union. Again, it saw Israel as a useful ally in this sense. The, the complications of the Iran-Contra affair seemed to some Reagan administration officials to prove Israel's worth. And beyond that, from the 1980s, the Israeli right began forging a new political alliance, which was the right wing of the Republican Party, and particularly with uh, evangelical Protestant Christians in the United States, who were becoming increasingly politically active from the 1970s, and over the decades since have come to constitute one of the most important Uh, mass bases of the Republican Party. It's one reason why the Republican Party has moved so far to the right over recent decades. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them have subscribed to to a certain theological perspective which sees the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel as a a stage um, toward the second coming of Christ, right? So that in that sense, Israel and the Jews are, are instrumental um, but it provides a theological and, and along with the Cold War and anti-Sovietism and hostility to Islam, uh, a political basis for uh, a, a substantial new constituency on the right in the United States to support Israel. This is important in understanding why Republicans seem to be more aligned with Israel today and why Donald Trump's administration, which relies heavily on Christian support, played a huge role in normalizing Israeli occupation by settlements in Palestine. This in turn led to a shift in support for Palestine on the part of the Democratic Party, which started serving a younger, more progressive voter base. Younger generations are considerably more sympathetic to the Palestinians. And while Jewish people have historically been in favor of pro-Israeli politics, even younger Jewish people in the U.S. are growing more sympathetic to the plight of Palestinians. In a recent survey published by the Pew Research Center, only about half of Jewish adults under 30 describe themselves as emotionally connected to Israel. This is way less in comparison to about the two-thirds of Jews over the age of 64 who feel the same way. 
And so, with the election of U.S. President Joe Biden, many were excited to see Trump finally kicked out of office. But they were soon disappointed by his inaction towards Israeli violence. Since starting his term, Biden has delayed calling Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as postponing the appointment of a U.S. ambassador to Israel or a consul to Jerusalem. Then Biden started excusing Israel's aggression, saying that it had the right to defend itself. The U.S. also vetoed a United Nations Security Council statement three times in one week over the Israel-Gaza killings. Even 500 of his staffers are now urging him to take a stronger stance to hold Israel accountable. His first reaction and that of the you know pretty conventional foreign policy people that he's put in place, most of them drawn from the, from the Obama administration, some of them going back to the Clinton administration, basically replicated the, the kind of line that we've heard, again, for a very long time. Not totally uncritical support of the kind that, that Trump advanced. Trump basically gave Israel a blank check to do whatever it wanted. But the, the same kind of position that the Obama administration took, by and large, when there was a conflict with Hamas in 2008, 2009, just before it came into office, Again, in, in 2014, the, the last major Israeli assault on Gaza. So, I, you know, I think Biden's instinct, again, he's, he's been in politics a very long time, going back to the 1970s. I think on this issue, uh, his natural instinct is, is, is rooted in, in the, again, that traditional uh, Democratic Party support for Israel um, and very positive view of Israel and, and more broadly that the, the, the old-fashioned bipartisan Uh, embrace of Israel. So does it really matter who gets elected into the United States? Will the U.S. always be hesitant to stand up to Israel? The American policy on on Israel uh, and Palestine has been consistent regardless of uh, the of the uh, who who has who holds the keys to the White House, Republicans or Democrats. Um, I think people tend to to be more optimistic when it's a democratic uh, administration, uh, but the historical record has not actually backed that. You know, I remember when when Obama got elected, there was so much optimism in the Middle East. Um, And I kind of kept telling my dad, you know, I think you need to relax a little bit. I think your optimism is misplaced. (laughs) And the fact is, um, Obama never failed to fail the Palestinians throughout his uh, two terms. However, Dr. Dalasheh believes that even though the establishment's support for Israel will continue, popular mobilization has changed the way Palestine is talked about across the world. I also think that American geostrategic interests are not shifting and not changing in ways that will um, allow uh, it to be to become um, anything but what Professor Rashid Khalidi called brokers of deceit um, in this conflict. I actually think that there is uh, the, the, the good I'm seeing is a shift in, in the public opinion that will uh, hopefully maintain pressure. Uh, we've seen uh, demonstrations throughout the U.S. and actions of so in support of the Palestinians throughout the U.S. And I'm hoping that this uh, will continue to be a part of the story. Um, and I'm also uh, uh, more encouraged to believe that there would be also uh, an increasing European role that could help uh, further shift um, American 
position to at least stop being so adamantly one-sided. This shift in public opinion seems to be infiltrating the U.S. establishment somewhat. Rashida Tlaib, the first elected Palestinian lawmaker, along with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, and Cori Bush, have been on the forefront of placing Palestine as a priority for the Democratic Party. Even a growing number of moderate-leaning politicians are now speaking out against Israeli strikes on Palestinians. An unprecedented 28 members of Congress signed a letter urging a ceasefire. While it is clear that attitudes on the conflict are shifting in Washington, these growing voices remain a minority. Even though they have attempted to halt Biden's attempt to sell $735 million worth of weapons to Israel, according to the Wall Street Journal, Sanders has now backed away from the plan because the State Department has already finalized the sale. The Biden administration is now attempting to concretize a peace plan between Israel and Palestine, but many have said that this is a little too late. As history shows us, the U.S. relationship with Israel has been codependent at best, and many are worried that by the time the U.S. takes concrete action to halt Israel's ethnic cleansing campaign, the very existence of Palestine might be on the line. Social media feeds filled with articles, videos, and action appeals for Palestine. Activists on the ground and across the world mobilized to raise awareness on why everyone should be speaking out against Israel, using the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah and calling for an end to the bombing of the Gaza Strip. These activists were the pillar of the mobilization campaign which erupted with the help of the diaspora in different corners of the world. So the new Arab voice spoke with two veteran activists on what it's like to campaign for Palestine in today's world. Webinars to direct support and aid to Palestinians, um, letter writing, uh, call-in campaigns to elected officials. We're now organizing uh, block the boat campaigns to block uh, Zim shipments. We've uh, kind of taken the lead on repivoting uh, solidarity uh, groups' demands for Palestine to move away from ending the occupation, to move away from this fragmented approach to Israeli colonization and ethnic cleansing. Lamis Dik is a human rights lawyer and co-founder of Alauda New York, the oldest Palestinian-led rights organization in the U.S. which focuses on the rights of Palestinian refugees. Lamis says that the most difficult thing about her campaigning is facing the persistent dehumanization of her people. The demonization of Palestinians so normalized that people who associate with, with this face real legal employment, life, school repercussions. In fact, we've seen Israeli and Zionist groups who've taken to targeting Palestinians in the Palestinian Solidarity Committee who've actually really liquidated various formations in New York um, who were historically very supportive. Samaya Awad, 27, is based in New York City and is the Director of Strategy at the Adala Justice Project. She's also a member of Democratic Socialists for America, where she works on divestment and boycott. Her aim at Adala is to shift public opinion and advocate for Palestine and ending U.S. funding for Israel. She has been campaigning for Palestine ever since she was in high school in Amman, Jordan. I've always been part of this struggle and pushed for, for Palestinian freedom because I'm Palestinian, but also because I recognize that Palestine actually plays a very central role in freedom struggles all over the world um, because of the way that Israel is connected to different um, um, imperialist countries. 
in the U.S. is one of them, and its role in sort of helping to prop up and um, develop, you know, cozy ties with right-wing governments from Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, um, Viktor Orban in Hungary, etc. Somaya's grandfather was from Jerusalem and was forced to leave in 1948. He was never allowed to return to his homeland, an unfortunately common story for Palestinians across the world. Somaya started her campaigning when she was just a teenager in Jordan, but when she moved to the United States, she was shocked to see how much of a taboo subject this really was. In the U.S. in, in particular, you know, what's kept me going is the fact that ever since so I got to the U.S., I was in college when I started doing activism around Palestine and the U.S. I was born and raised in Jordan. Um, and on campus, I mean, when I look today and compare it to when I started when I was in my first year of college, I mean, back then you really couldn't talk about Palestine openly. Um, you couldn't talk about, you know, what it would mean to end Israel's settler colonial state um, project and what it would mean to stop the ethnic cleansing or to talk about like Palestinian rights, right to resist their occupation, um, to talk about divesting from Israel without being labeled and smeared as an anti-Semite and then, you know, completely delegitimized. I mean, right now in the mainstream, like on places like CNN, MSNBC, you have Palestinians being given the opportunity to speak and to talk about Palestine, to talk about what Palestinians are demanding. And that's a very low bar, right, to, to, to offer the chance for the oppressed to speak about their oppressor. But in the U.S. context, that's actually, that shows that we are moving forward and that our movement is growing and that it's no longer this fringe conversation that's happening behind closed doors, but it's actually being thrust into the mainstream. Lamy says that the use of social media has revolutionized the way that people from all over the world perceive the Palestinian struggle. You know, this really began in the end of 2008, 2009, when Palestinians were able to film, uh, to televise, to have their own media platforms and access to the world um, to demonstrate the extent and nature of Israeli violence. And that was really the beginning of the unraveling of the Israeli and Zionist narrative of number one, being the most moral army on earth, being this beacon of democracy. Once people understand and they can see physically what is happening, that also creates moral clarity, right? So a lot of the confusion, which the Israeli narrative is intended to do, that's also unraveled. And so when there's visual clarity, there's also moral clarity. And this moral clarity has really propelled the masses of the world. And the majority of the masses uh, do stand with, with the struggle for Palestinian liberation, and increasingly so, and more vocally so now. Samayan Lamis spoke with me about the ways in which those who are interested in taking action for Palestine can do so from abroad. Lamis believes that education is really at the foundation for any effective campaigning. The first thing that I would ask people looking to campaign around Palestine is to operate within a liberation framework, within a decolonization framework. Palestinians are not interested in being subjects of some apartheid entity. So before people begin campaigning, I would strongly advise them to look at what it is the Palestinians themselves, and we are, yes, we are a big group, 
but I assure you we are all very clear that we do not want to be subjects of a two-state. We do not want to give up any of our rights to our homes and lands. We do not want to give up the right of our people in the refugee camps to return to those homes and lands. We ask that they prioritize these demands. These are historic demands that Palestinians have had for over 73 years to not liquidate or diminish from these central demands of Palestinians and then to engage in their work on that basis, ensuring that nothing that allies undertake compromises um, or takes away from these demands. Sumaya stresses the importance of the boycott, divest and sanction campaign. I think in the US, the, the main the main demand the Palestinians have put forward and the one that I think is uh, most easily adopted, no matter what you do and where you are in the U.S., um, is the call for BDS, because it offers different channels, different ways for you to push for Israel to be held accountable. So if, you know, it, boycotts are pretty simple and straightforward, and there's a list of these are the products that you boycott, these are the, the products that you sort of try to get off the shelves in your local grocery store and, and larger corporations, et cetera. Um, but then the second two, the D and the S, divestment sanctions, there are just so many ways to push that and push those conversations no matter what you do. So whether you're um, on a campus and to, di- to get your campus to divest from, from Israel and a significant number of U.S. colleges and universities have investments in military that have connections to Israel. Um, if you're in a union, many, many unions actually are invested in Israeli state bonds just to get your union to divest from those bonds uh, and release statements of solidarity with Palestinian workers. If you're uh, a teacher or a professor, et cetera, similarly, there's divestment. There's all these different ways to plug into divestment campaigns. And then, of course, another really important thing, um, just as important as the others, because they're all connected and they all sort of push in the same direction, is applying pressure on your local and your state representatives. Like many members of the Palestinian diaspora, Samaya has never been able to go to Palestine to see her grandfather's home, which still stands in Jerusalem. At the end of the day, what both Lamis and Samaya strive for is to remind the world of the humanity of Palestinians. Those sheltering from deadly rockets in Gaza, those fighting to keep their homes in Jerusalem, and those who were forced to flee, who simply want to return back to their homes. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa, Hugo Goodridge, and Nick McAlpin. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice, which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news from the region.